Good morning. I would ask you not to leave after I read the text. You'll see why when I read the text. Please open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise shall you bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, and this is why you might want to leave, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. That is the benediction. You have heard it many, many times. Most of the time when you hear it, you try to beat the Pentecostals to the Piccadilly. But what's going on here is, we're going to find out just how rich that benediction is. What does the word benediction mean? Does anybody know what that word means? Take it apart. What does it mean? Good word. Good word. A blessing. So what, what if you were in a position where someone of great power, someone of great wealth, looked you dead in the eye and asked you to ask him for anything you wanted? What would that be like? To be commanded to ask someone powerful enough to help you for his help. I mean, look at your own position in this situation. You're totally powerless. You are needy. You're empty-handed before a potentate of vast wealth and vast power. Everyone in the throne room is intimidated by the presence of this potentate. Visions of Isaiah 6 dance in your head. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the doorpost shook at the voice of him who spoke. And the room was filled with smoke. And nobody was laughing. The vision of that kind of terrifying power and strength. What would it do to your confidence if that kind of a king had before you entered his presence said to you, I command you. To enter my presence and ask anything you need. I'm not just going to put up with it. I'm going to be mad if you don't. What would that do to your prayer life? Because in a way, that's what we're setting up here. We're setting up a, uh, the benediction for these people came at the beginning of the service. Where men came to seek God's blessing, to seek God's presence, which is the highest of all of his blessings. Now, the, the, verse, the verses here that you know so well come in the midst of a, of a context that you maybe don't know so well. It's right after the description of the Nazarite vow. Verses 1 through 21 of that chapter talk about the Nazarite. And the Nazarite was a professional weirdo. <laughs> he looks weird. He acts weird. He eats weird. He worships weird. 
Everything about him is different. And he served an important purpose in the Israelite community. A major part of the Nazarite's job, aside from his own personal pursuit of holiness and his own personal pursuit of, uh, of the presence of God, a major part of his job is to stand out. He's separated to God. He is separated to God in a way that the normal Israelite is not separated to God. But he's supposed to remind the other Israelites, hey, this is how weird you look to the rest of the world. His separation is a separation out of the separated ones. To remind the separated ones, you have been called out. You possess a heritage in the visible church. You possess a heritage that has called you out from the nations, that has set you apart for the purposes of God, that has set you apart as a display of the glory of God. And most of the time, what the part of the, of the glory of God that gets displayed among the Israelites is his mercy, because they need it so much. If we can't lead by the example of our upright conduct, maybe we can lead by the example of our glorious forgiveness in the, lack, in the absence of our upright conduct. That's really what they were like. But the whole idea behind the Nazarite is my differences magnify to you the difference God requires of you. You should not be like the world. You've been called out. You have a purpose apart from the world. You belong to God. What is that that we call our only comfort in life and in death? That I, both body and soul, in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. That's why. And what's going on in the great benediction is explained right after it. Thus shall you put my name on the people. The signature of God. That's what the passage is. The signature of God. He's written his name on you. This is mine. I have to confess that when I look in the mirror, I often consider it a waste of ink. But God doesn't think so. He rejoices. He delights to put his name on us. He's asked us to ask him for anything. Verse 22. And the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his son saying, On this wise, this way, shall you bless the children of Israel. Saying to them. Okay. We need to to deal with the idea of a difference here in the offices involved. There are two of the three messianic offices. Now, those few, those happy few, those band of brothers who showed up for Sunday school this morning, heard a little bit about the three offices of Christ. And we see two of them in play here. We see the prophet and the priest. Anybody know what the third one is? The king, prophet, priest, and king. Now, let's lay aside royalty for a while. Let's look at the prophet and the priest. The ministry of the prophet is a vertical ministry. It comes down. 
What happens when a prophet speaks is that the prophet is delivering a word that he has received from God. God has spoken to his people. The prophet is the mouthpiece of God. It is a downward-looking ministry as God speaks to his people. The priestly office is different. It goes up. The priestly office brings before God the sacrifices, offerings, and prayers of his people and reaches up to God with those sacrifices, offerings, and prayers. That's how the two offices work. Now, God speaks to the prophet, instructing him to instruct the priest to pray for the people according to a certain formula. And here's this certain formula. He prays for the people in front of the people. He's not in his closet here. He's in front of the people, and the people hear their representative approach God on their behalf. Wrap your head around the idea that there is a representative who approaches God's, God's throne on your behalf. Why don't we have priests in Reformed churches? Because Jesus Christ is our priest. Wrap your head around this idea. What does that mean? That means that the second person of the Trinity who has clothed himself in human flesh and become everything that it is to be a man walks into the presence of God the Father, lifts up the hands that still bleed from the wounds inflicted on him on our behalf and prays with the voice that revealed the face of God to man addressing his Father who hears our prayers emerge from his lips. What does that do for your prayer life? And oh, by the way, not in this passage, but the Holy Spirit's doing the same thing. Except more intensely. Remember how Paul describes the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Where the third person of the Trinity also prays for you. But how does he do it? In groanings too deep for words. Or you're just prattling off a road prayer to get to the end of it. The third person of the Trinity is groaning before God with incomprehensible depth, incomprehensible intensity. And the Trinity is in a prayer meeting of which you are the subject, and that never stops. What does that do for your prayer life? And people say Trinitarian theology is not practical. In that capacity, with that structure in place to receive our prayers, God has commanded us to seek these blessings, that the, that the blessing is going to listen to the list. Seek these blessings for him. He has used two of the three messianic offices and two of the three persons of the Trinity, for that matter, in connection with this prayer. What does that do for your confidence when you approach God in prayer with the needs of your heart, with your pain, with your bewilderment, with your loneliness? And you bring those burdens into that throne room. What does that do? 
to your confidence in prayer. Now we've got prayer itself. The first thing that we notice in this prayer is the name that is used. The name is Yahweh. Or as it would have actually been pronounced Adonai, Lord. This is not the generic name that, con that conveys the generic or abstract idea of deity. This is not a God. This is the covenant name. This is the one revealed in Exodus 3. This is the name of the one God of the relationship. The God of the promises. The God of the mighty deeds. The self-disclosing God. The God of the Red Sea. The God of the wilderness and the manna. That's who this is. There's a relationship there. This is not, I say again, this is not Aristotle's unmoved mover. This is not a concept. This is a personal being in a deeply cherished relationship who is inviting us out of his genuine, thoroughly displayed love. Come to me. Come to me for everything. In a sense, when we use this name, Yahweh, Adonai, we're approaching God on a first name basis. On the one hand, it is absolutely reverent. On the other, there is a certain paternal informality about it. That's the name that's used. And how often is it used? You see, when Semitic languages want to emphasize something, they say it twice. Look at the text. Count. How many times is the name used? The answer is three. He's emphasizing the covenant. He's emphasizing the relationship. He's emphasizing the first name closeness with which God commands us to approach him. And then he gives three pairs of blessings. Verse 24. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. That's the first one. Talk about blessing. Blessing means to make happy and to make full. It involves a complete provision, a complete satisfaction. Remember that the first recipients of this blessing are people that up to this point have never known a day without hunger, deprivation, and death. They are the sons of the Exodus. They've seen the defining moment of deliverance in the Old Testament. Who got called out of Egypt? What kind of people were they? What did they do for a living? They got caught up in a pyramid scheme. <laughs> they built the pyramids. That's hard work, folks. That's lethal work. And they did it on the worst of food, when they could get the worst of food. They did it in a desert. They had seen their son's blood go into those pyramids. That's who they were. And now the creator of the heavens and the earth is going to bless them and keep them and give them the fullest possible satisfaction with every area of their lives. 
a complete enrichment of everything that they are. This is the same God that they saw part the Red Sea. For us, the Red Sea is something we read about in a book. For them, it was front row seats. They actually saw it happen. They looked up at the waters. And what happened after they went through the Red Sea? Things got bad for the people that followed them. They'd seen that. They, what did they get for breakfast every morning? Food that fell out of the sky. That was how they lived. So they're completely surrounded by this kind of blessing, this kind of joy, this kind of contentment to the fullest possible degree. Complete satisfaction in the covenant land for the covenant people. That's the blessing that Aaron and his sons are supposed to pronounce on these people. They're commanded to ask God for that. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The word can mean guard. You ever notice in the Old Testament, everybody always has enemies? And by enemy, they don't mean somebody who don't like you. That's not an enemy. We all have people who don't like you. Okay, I have had my share of people who don't like me because, well, quite frankly, I've earned it. An enemy is something different. An enemy is somebody who wants to hurt you and can. An enemy is somebody who actively desires your destruction. And God's people in the Old Testament, less so in the New Testament, I think, but in the Old Testament, they always have enemies. That, that's always a reality. The blessing comes in the context of danger. It comes in the context of contact with enemies. The word enemy is used 330 times in the Old Testament. I wonder why. The truths we confess make enemies for us. The life we live accuses even when we don't. It makes enemies. They're always enemies. God never takes us out of the context of worldly opposition. Rather, He prepares a table for us where? In the presence of our enemies, which is better. Why is that better than not having any enemies? He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He does not simply protect he vindicates. It's not just that there's a fence around you and the enemy can't get at you, although that is true. And for your enemy to get at you, God, for his reasons, which are always wise and always kind, has got to open the gate. Which he sometimes does for his purposes. But that's not the protection we're talking about here. We're not just talking about, yeah, 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 you can't get me. We're talking about being held up in front of an audience of angels and demons and men. And having it proclaimed of you by the mouth of Almighty God, this one is mine. And having a life that displays His glory and power and attributes in such a way 
that he gets to say and you get to hear in front of an audience of angels and demons and men. This is what I can do by my grace to a broken, ruined, sinful life. This is what I can make. See? And the thing that God has remade glorifies him by reflecting his redemptive and reconciling power. And there before those angels, demons, and men are you not merely protected from the enmity of the law, but vindicated as righteous before the whole world. The Lord bless you and keep you. That's deliverance. That's vindication. It's one thing when you get hauled into, into a trial, and put on trial, and you get found innocent. It's quite another to get found righteous. And that's what's going on here. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. Then the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The blessing here moves to the idea of the face of God. The face of God is the presence, the character, His observation and participation. Suppose for the sake of argument that you went to God in prayer and maybe you could see Him. And while you were going to God in prayer bringing Him the greatest concern of your hearts, this is what you could see. Yeah, okay, I'll get back to you on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll work. Put two seraphim on that, will you? Okay. You see Jesus lately? I got to talk to him. Uh, I got this guy here. I got to deal with. I, okay, I, I get, suppose that was what it was like to approach God. Think about it. Then again, contrast that with walking into the room where there is someone who loves you, and you call that person by name, and that person looks up to you, and everything else in his world evaporates. And you have the undivided attention of the one you love. And how do you know that? You see his face looking at you. Except this is the face of the one who created the heavens and the earth. And he's giving you his undivided attention. How crazy do you have to be to believe that? That's what the passage tells us to believe. That God is going to lift that face upon us and look on us. Remember, these were the people who had read the first chapter of the book of, of Exodus. And the, when they read the first chapter of the books of Exodus, they heard these words. And God saw... And God heard their cries. And God knew. You've been lost. You've been confused. You've been lonely. You've been in pain. You've felt betrayed. You've been disappointed. How much difference does it make in your life to look out of all of that misery and pain and confusion and hear the words, and God sees, and God hears, and God knows. His face is towards you. He is looking at you. You have his attention. He's not on the phone. 
the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. God's face is said to possess light. It shines. It's said to be lifted up. The prophet asked God to show us His love, His delight, His happiness in us. The light of the face is the light of the cherishing and and approval and favor. We are not endured by God. We're enjoyed by God. And He is glad to see you. Now, God's God's omnipresent. You can't get away from Him. He's always there. But when you come here, there is a different kind of presence of God. It is not merely that He's absent when you're watching this on TV. He is not absent when you're watching this on TV. Nor is He absent when you're doing your daily work and when you're thinking about other things like what i got to do tomorrow and what's on TV. He's not absent then. But there's a different kind of presence when you come here. The old Puritans used to refer to it as a trysting place of the soul. You know the word tryst, T-R-Y-S-T, tryst. You ever heard that word? It was used a lot more in the 17th century than we use it now, but we still have the idea. It's a gathering between two lovers. A place where two lovers go where there isn't anybody else. A place where they can simply delight in the sight of each other. Maybe they talk, maybe they don't. Maybe they touch, maybe they don't. But there is the deep and serene joy of sharing the taste of the face and presence of the one that they love. The undiverted, undiluted delight of a face-to-face presence with a beloved. And when we come here as the body of Christ to worship the Christ of the body, this twisting place of the soul has been set aside by our lover because he desires our company. And though he has no needs and lacks nothing, he is blessed to put his arms around us and to speak to us. And to encourage us and protect us. Who is this we're talking about here? The person who created the heavens and the earth? Wants to talk to you? Wants to delight in you? Has called you before his face for the specific purpose of pouring out love and mercy and happiness on you just because he loves you and for no other reason? And so we hear about the face of God and grace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The word for grace here means to bend or stoop kindly to an inferior. I guess the best word we could use to describe it is condescension. We don't like condescension. We find it insulting. You can only condescend to somebody who's lower than you are. It's kind of stupid to feel insulted when you're condescended to by Almighty God, like He's going to be able to avoid that. But what does the word condescend mean? Okay, let's take your Latin, let's cut it up. What does it mean? Where do we get the word? 
What does the Latin word con mean? It means with. To descend with. To come down and be among us. We have a name to describe that, don't we? Emmanuel, which means God with us. The condescending God. The one who answered the prayer, rend the heavens and come down. He said, okay, and he did so. He tore the heavens and he came down. Now, in an ethical context, it means unmerited, unearned, undeserved, or even forfeited favor, which God delights to give. It's one thing not to deserve something. That's one thing. But to go beyond undeserving, we're going beyond failing to deserve. We're at a point where we've actually forfeited it. We've thrown it away. And when God calls us in here... When he calls us here under the promises of redemption and reconciliation, he ignores that. He ignores that cost of blood. He says, I don't care. I'm going to put that behind us. Despite what you have forfeited, I'm going to give it back to you anyway. That's the face of God in grace. Then we see the face of God in peace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. First of all, he lifts it up. You're summoned into the presence of God. He turns his gaze upon you. No cell phone. No distractions. No TV. The creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime, is consciously aware of you face to face. His eyes are on you. You have his full undivided attention. His eyes are full of joy. They're full of love. They're full of delight. These eyes will see the whole history of the universe in a single eternal instant, brimming with revelry in an overwhelming love for a cherished child. That's what God does when you seek Him in this way. Thus does omnipotence crawl around on the floor. And He gives you shalom. Shalom, which we translate peace, is not merely the absence of war. As a matter of fact, you can have shalom in the middle of a war. Shalom is the enjoyment of God's protection, the enjoyment of God's provision, the enjoyment that comes from a God-given trust in God, in His Word, in His promises. Hell may be raining down on your head, But there is a rock-bottom fundamental trust that He has given you. A confidence that He is who He is, will be who He has been. And that His promises are to be relied on no matter what. Even when the evidence says, no way. Even when the eyes of sight are telling you it's impossible. The eyes of faith see a God who doesn't change. A God who keeps all his promises. And who, by the way, loves doing so. He's not stuck because he made a deal and now he's got to swear to his own hurt and change not. He rejoices to give you. Now it's interesting who all these blessings are aimed at. Back in the 17th century, the British 
were Southern. How do I know that? Because unlike Yankees, they had a word for y'all. They had a word for you, and they had a word for y'all. And the word for you is ye. That's a bunch of folks. The word thee means one. The Lord bless thee. The Lord keep thee. Now, refresh my memory. Where was this blessing being pronounced? In the gathered worship. This was not your pastor making a house call. In the gathered worship, the priests were saying, The Lord bless thee. Now, is that a grammatical error or a theological point? What he's saying by the use of a singular pronoun in the context of a gathered worship is that the people gathered are a singular, single being. The people gathered are united to Christ and therefore united to each other. All of these blessings are offered to you from the scripture in your capacity as a singular body. You are one. Your interests are the same. Your life goals are the same. The relationship that you have to God is a shared relationship. You are united to Christ. There is a union between Christ and the Father and the Spirit that is incomprehensible. And yet we understand that it is one being in three persons. There is a union between this Godhead and humanity that is incomprehensible, but we understand that there is a divine nature and a human nature made into one person. We don't know how that works. In the nature of the case, finite creatures can't know how that works. But then on top of that, there is a union in which people with wildly differing preferences, personalities, perspectives are woven by divine thread into a single thing that the God-man, the Son of God, calls my body. And when you gather to worship your King, that body displays itself. You literally see what God has made. A single entity. We call it the church. So the blessing addresses the covenant people as a unified body. You, his church, you're one. The singular pronoun shows that this blessing is shared by the whole community. God sees it as a single entity. Here again is that inescapable doctrine of union with Christ. We can't get away from union with uh, from Christ. It's a fundamental radiant part of our theology. When you look at uh, the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, there are really two good ways to describe what happens to us when God saves us. One of them is in a straight line from foreordination to glorification and everything that happens in between. And we describe it one, two, three, four consecutively. Nothing is wrong with that. All the standard systematic theologies do that. That is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But there's another way. The other way is to put union with Christ at the center. 
and have all the other things, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, radiating out. A radial display of God's doings. Because everything that we have from God, we have because we are in Christ. We're unified with Him, united to Him. Well, if I'm united to Christ, and you're united to Christ, what necessarily follows? We're united to each other. And all the glorious blessings of the atonement and the satisfaction Christ makes for sin, and justification and adoption and sanctification and all these things, we receive in Christ as shared. That means we can't lose them. And it means we delight in them together. And that's why the gathered worship is so vital for the body of Christ. It's where we come together and feast together on what God has given us, which is what's going to happen right there in just a minute. So the idea here is that we've been signed with God's signature. And they shall put my name upon the children of all Israel, and I will bless them. They who? The ministers of the church. They apply God's name to his people. That was done to me many, many, many years ago. Right here. It's been done to most of you at some point in your life. Right here. What happens right here? Baptism. Baptism is not a nice, cute little ceremony by which we tell everybody, look, we got a new baby, ain't that cool? Baptism does exactly what this blessing did. It puts God's signature on your child. And I'm going to take a minute as I close to address the children of this congregation who are no longer in sympathy with the Word of God. Those of you who stood here or someplace like this, God has signed you. You may be wandering. You may not care. You may be actively and openly hostile to the truths that are taught from this pulpit and from this book. God has put His signature on you. And if you are apostate, if you have turned away from the gospel, you are stolen property. And God will recover you. The question I have for you is, will he recover you in mercy or will he recover you in justice? But make no mistake, you are stolen. And he will have what is his. That's my little freebie. But we have had God's name written on us, indicating his ownership of us. As if that weren't already proved by the fact that he made us. He is our father three times over. He created us. He redeemed us. And he provides for us. I'd say it's pretty accurate that we belong to him. That's not an unjust claim. That's a perfectly reasonable jurisdiction to assert. And that's what he is asserting here. The ultimate blessing that God gives to his people is his ownership of them. 
The highest blessing that he gives to his people is his possession of them by which he knits them into his very being and says, you are in my heart, cherished, embraced, and loved, and I will not let you get away. So when you hear this benediction in a few more minutes, understand the fullness of it. Understand the implications. God has signed his name to you. He owns you. And he's called you here to love you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your ownership of your body. Your ownership of the people that you have called into your presence. That we, having been such rebels, would be welcome in a place you inhabit is incomprehensible. We pray that you would give us a profound appreciation of what it is that you do by calling us into your presence and presenting yourself as an object of worship. Give us eyes that truly see you, Lord God, that seek you, that desire you. In Jesus' name. Amen.